still in our summer series, working through the Psalms. It has been a wonderful time. Pastor Tyler led us through Psalm 6 last week, 8 last week. I forget which one it was. It was one of those. Uh, and it was a wonderful time. And, uh, and now I have the privilege to take us through Psalm 11. But as you're turning there, it's by no means a surprise that we live in some very trying times. Many of us face difficulties and burdens in our life, be it relational struggles, financial struggles, personality struggles. We face times of hurt and pain and crisis. And nobody enjoys crisis in their life. Nobody wakes up and goes, you know what, honey? You know what we haven't had enough of lately? A good old crisis. Maybe we should go find one. Nobody wakes up wanting a crisis, but crisis tends to come and find us. And they tend to find us at the most inconvenient times. And for whatever reason, they oftentimes come in threes. You have one bad thing, and then another bad thing, and then another bad thing. The old saying goes, I know we don't understand this too much in Drumheller, but when it rains, it pours. You know, And when it rains, it pours. And many of us have faced times like that in our lives. Times of hardship and trials where it just seems like life can't get any worse. And then it has the audacity to get even worse. And those times are hard. And some of you are in those times right now. Some of you have just come out of those times. And some of you may be heading into those times. And today's psalm gives us insight and hope that we have as God's people in the face of crisis in our life. Now, this psalm doesn't contain a magic formula that you can just repeat to yourself after service, and then boom, all your issues disappear. That's not what will work, but it does give you a firm foundation and a hope that you can stand upon as a believer in Jesus Christ and face your current struggles and your future struggles in the truth and faith of who God is, that God is faithful, that God is sure, and that God is in control. And here is a really important one. God is never caught by surprise. He's never caught off guard. But even on top of personal crisis, this psalm gives us hope in the face of a wicked world. When we look at our governments and we see their wicked plans and schemes, when we see agendas rising in the world, when we see the world becoming more anti-God, when we see churches selling out to the things of the world, when we are trying to live under conviction of what it means to be a follower of Christ in this hostile world, it can all feel very overwhelming to us. And the first thing in our minds to do is flee, to just give in, to accept it all and to become just like the world. But this psalm gives us an alternative to fleeing. This psalm gives us uh, an avenue of facing the issues that we have in the culture and in our lives head-on in faith. Christians can be tempted by fear. We're not above that. We're not immune to being, being frightened or worried or, or things like that. Now, we sh that doesn't give us a pass, but they will come. We can be tempted by fear. In Psalm 11 is David's answer to the panic that gripped his friends when the foundations of their society seemed to be crumbling around them. Does it seem like our foundations of our society are crumbling? I think this is a very timely psalm for us. Very timely. God's people have a choice in this world. And it's between flight and faith. 
And David's response was to take refuge in God and keep doing what was right, no matter the cost. And this should be our response as Christians to an anti-God world and to our personal crises as well as we apply Psalm 11 to our lives. So with that introduction, let's go to Psalm 11 and read it in its entirety, and then we will break it down verse by verse. It says in verse 1, The Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, and his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall see his face. What a promise. May God bless the reading of his word. So the first thing that we see in Psalm 11 is... David's temptation. And in Psalm 11 opens with David's temptation, and it's a temptation that is something that we have all struggled with at times, and maybe even struggling with right now. And that's the temptation to doubt God in the time of need, to doubt God in the time of turmoil and crisis. When life is good, we hardly question God. But when life is hard, our first temptation is to doubt who he is. We doubt his goodness, and we doubt his faithfulness. We're not sure when David exactly wrote this psalm. Some scholars think that it was when he was serving King Saul in his court, and Saul was plotting to murder him. You think you have a bad boss? You know, David, David had it pretty hard, right? And, and the uncertainty of this time for David is surely fitting for Psalm 11. Others think David wrote this when Saul was chasing him in the wilderness. And, and at some point in this time of chasing, Saul actually murdered Ahimelech the priest along with his entire family and village, 85 priests with their family. It was a horrible time. And this sent shockwaves throughout all of Israel that shook the foundations of the nation as they faced this mass execution. And other, other writers think it was during his son Absalom's rebellion when Aslam rose up and tried to dethrone his father from the king, and he went into hiding. But none of these situations from my reading seem to fit Psalm 11. Because there's one obvious difference, that in each of these cases that I just mentioned, David did flee when his life was threatened. While he says here in Psalm 11 that he refuses to flee. And this suggests that this psalm is not talking about necessarily physically running. We're actually supposed to read this more broadly as a temptation to abandon the place that God has appointed for us in the face of the onslaught of evil that is rising around us in our culture and maybe even in our homes. You see, God anointed David to be king. And his friends or his counselors were counseling him to forget this calling, to forget this anointing, to save himself. To fly like a bird to his mountain, they said in verse 1. Run away. We've all seen a coastal bird, right? They fly up to the cliff tops of some cliff when there's a storm, and they hide themselves in the cleft of the cliff for safety. And this is what they're telling him. His counselors, his friends are saying, do that. 
Flee to your mountain. Go hide in the rocks. Give up, King David. Give up trying to be the king that God anointed you to be. And in the same way, Christian, you who are a believer in Christ, God has given all of us a role in this world. We are to be the salt. We are to be the light of this world, of this earth, as we see in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Jesus commanded every single one of you, if you're a believer in this room, every single one of you are commanded by our risen Savior to make disciples of the nations. All nations, including the one you live in. The temptation to fly away means to abandon the work and the calling that God has placed upon your life, to give up in the face of evil. We're facing a very wicked world. We're facing a government that is very anti-God. We're facing laws and statutes that are making it harder and harder to live out a faithful Christian life. What are we to do? Are we to flee? Are we to give in? Are we to change suddenly what the Bible has taught for thousands of years and accept a new cultural interpretation? Or are we to stay true? It's a great temptation. It's easier to run than stay. But David met this temptation the same way we should all, with a confident refusal. David is bewildered by the advice that he is receiving. This is why he makes this declaration in verse 1. He says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? He said, how can you even suggest that? How can you even say that? You have to really feel the indignation of David in his response. How can you even say that to me? And the verb flee here in verse 1 is plural. So is the pronoun your, which shows us that this advice was given to all God's people at this time. There was a rising tide of fear and despair that was sweeping over the nation of Israel. It was kind of like a hurricane evacuation. Everyone get out. Everyone suck all the gas drive, all the gas stations, and get out of town, right? Every man for themselves. Everybody run to your place of safety, to your mountain. We all have a mountain in our lives. We all have a place where we run to that is not God, that we think that will give us safety, that will give us security, that will give us protection. Maybe it's money. If I just have enough of it, I'll be, I'll be good. Maybe it's job security. If I just can get a secure job, then I'll be fine. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you look to your husband or your wife as your God, as your rock. Maybe you look to your kids. Those are all great things. Don't hear me wrong. Money's not bad. Job security's not bad. Your wife and your husband, they're great. Your kids are wonderful blessings from God. But they make horrible gods horrible gods, and they will not sustain you in the time of need. They will crumble. You cannot erect a wall great enough to sustain you from the pressures and the storms of life. They will all erode and fail. You cannot get a berm big enough around you to protect you from the pressures of life. They will fail. Only God is your refuge. Only God is your mountain. Only God is your security. And guess what? God never fails. Never. 
And David chose to take refuge in God by faith. His situation was still dire. He knew that God was near, that he was a strong wall to protect him and to care for him. And David would not surrender to unbelief that was knocking at his door. We all have unbelief knocking at our doors at times. And David chose not to deny God by giving into panic, by running away from the place that God has called him to be, his anointed king. But we would be naive as modern people to think that this was an easy decision for God, or for David. David was probably, he probably felt like you have, he felt this temptation deeply in his soul. That it tugged at him where he was vulnerable and where he was weak. And to make matters worse, to make temptation greater, people stepped in and they do what people do best. And they give merit to the temptation. Oh, I'm feeling like I should run. Yeah, you should probably run. If you feel it, brother, you got to go. What? What about trusting God? I'm not saying running is never the option. Maybe God needs to take you out. Jesus had to go to Egypt, for goodness sake, so he didn't die as a baby. But where is trusting God? Where is consulting God? And some of these people were probably his friends, similar to Job's friends. And the advice that David was receiving from these people, from his friends, appealed to his deepest needs, desires, and hopes, because that's how our enemy works. He works through trusted sources. That's why I say discernment as a Christian is not knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. The gospel that these false churches preach is, you better believe it, they sound right. But you got to know your word and know that you got to know the difference between right and almost right. A chocolate chip cookie is good, but you add a little dog doo-doo in there, it's not too good anymore. It still looks good, but it's going to have a very different effect. On the surface, what they said made sense to David, made sense to what, what he was saying. But what I call this is the counsel of despair. Look at verse 2 with me. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Clearly, we're seeing from verse 2 that the godly were in intimate and present danger. David's friend described this danger in graphic terms. They were telling us that the archers were not just armed, but they had their arrows in their bow, and they had their bow drawn. Now, I'm not a hunter by any means, but I have drawn a bow. And bows have lots of pounds of pressure behind them. So this archer, he's drawn, he's ready to shoot. And he can only hold for so long. I don't care how strong you are. You can only hold for so long before your fingers slip and the arrow flies. Which shows us that the godly are in intimate danger from the violence of the wicked. And look where the wicked are fighting from. Look where they're shooting from. They're shooting from the dark. They're lying like assassins in the shadows to shoot at the righteous, the upright in heart, so they don't see it coming. Our enemy fights dirty, church. He fights dirty. And he's going to shoot at you from areas that you wouldn't expect. That's why I'm always saying from here, don't even play with sin. Don't even try to get as close as you can to the line because you don't know where that arrow is coming from. Be prepared. Look at what he says in verse 3, uh, because we see that the, 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 these, these, his counselors are saying that there's nothing left but just to throw in the towel and to concede defeat. And then in verse 3, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's the counsel of despair written all over it. The godly are helpless, they're saying. 
There's nothing left anyone can do. Whatever you had, the glory days of the past are gone. Why waste your life, David, on this hopeless crusade? Why would you build on sand? Why would you try to plow the sea? Why would you try to hold back the tide? You better just give up and run away. David, it's better for you just to deny your calling and leave in the face of this evil. Have you ever been there? At your wit's end? What's the point, God? I've tried my all. I've done everything you've said. I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. I'm reading my word. I'm sharing my faith. I'm living as a light in this world. And I feel like I'm making no progress. Should I just pack up and give up? Walk away from this calling that you've called me to? Church, this is a timeless temptation that we all face. The temptation to give up. It's a game in the mind that the devil plays with us. Jesus was tempted by the same advice. You shouldn't feel like you're any less of a Christian if you've had these thoughts. Because Jesus was also given this advice to run away from the danger that God appointed to his life. For instance, some of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 13 came to him and said, Get away from here. Why? Because Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. I love Jesus' response. I don't know if I could ever respond like this without confusing my uh, readers. But, uh, and he said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. But it didn't just come from the Pharisees. It even came from his disciples. They were trying to counsel him to turn away from what God was calling him to do. Jesus on his way to Bethany. He was going there to raise Lazarus from the dead, and look what the disciples said to him. They said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And that's not like 21st century stoning, okay? This is death. Are you going there again? Why would you go back to Bethany, Jesus? They want to kill you in Bethany. Why would you go back to Judea? They want to stone you there. Aren't you afraid? That's what they're really asking. Aren't you afraid to die, Jesus? But again, Jesus didn't have it easy. Later, when Jesus told his disciples that he must be killed and rise again, Peter tried to speak some sense, some human wisdom. We love human wisdom. And it says, and Peter took him aside, began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, O Lord. This shall never happen to you. Look how Jesus responded. But he turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus wasn't calling Peter Satan necessarily. What what Jesus was calling Satan was the counsel that Peter was giving him. Because Satan shoots from the dark, from areas that you wouldn't think it would come from, from trusted sources even. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I've been called some bad things in life. I think this took Peter some time to get over, though. But imagine with me if Jesus did take that advice, the the counsel of despair, and followed it. He would have left the path that God laid out for him, and then you and I would just be sitting here like hopeless fools, hoping that we were saved, but we weren't. Because Jesus wouldn't have died for us or rose for us. Humanly speaking, what Peter was saying Sound it right. Like, just reason with Peter for a second. Like, what good can come from your death, Jesus? You're here with us right now. Why do you need to die? That doesn't make sense. 
And just think, Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. Truly God, truly man. And you got to believe his human nature was tempted. Yeah. Is there good in my death? Thank God he didn't give in to temptation. How many knows temptation is not sin? It's what you do with that, right? Our Lord was tempted without sin. The foundations are destroyed, they're telling David. You can't hold back the tide. Don't waste your life. Get your family and yourself out of danger. And Christians, we flee in many different ways. We flee by shutting down our evangelistic outreach, just make our church about a little box until everyone dies off and the church closes because we're afraid of the world. And there are many ways that Christians flee the crises that the world puts forward. Some, they move off to remote areas. They get right off grid and, and they live off, uh, off the land. I'm not saying there's anything bad with that, but how are you supposed to be the light of the world if you've cut yourself off from the world? Some people isolate themselves, though, culturally. They might live in our neighborhoods. They might come into our subdivisions, but they maintain a separate cultural identity. They reject changes in our culture that have nothing to do with godliness or the gospel. New styles and developments are guilty by association in their minds. An extreme example of this that you can kind of bring into your mind are the Amish. Or you could put in, <laughs> or you could put in, I don't know why that was funny, but yeah, the Amish or Old Order Mennonites or the Hutterites that we see around Drumheller all the time. Now you got to remember the conviction of these groups started off really good. They want it to not stick out in the world, but they want it to blend in. So the dress that they are wearing was actually the dress of that time. They want it to be looked at as normal people and then preach the gospel through that. Now here's the problem. The world changed, but they didn't. And now the conviction that started off good is actually working against them because now they do stick out. And this is one of the main problems with this approach is you become more known for your traditions than you do for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others withdraw emotionally. They stop caring uh, for the world around us, right? They see a man suffering or a woman suffering for their sin, and they say, well, it serves them right. They're finally getting what they deserve. And they forget that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve, because we would be destroyed. They forget that Jesus said in the Beatitudes that blessed are the merciful. Why? That's your question. Why are the merciful blessed? They shall receive mercy. An emotional withdrawn person is not an option for someone who has been touched and blessed by the grace of God. Some people flee also through nostalgia. This is me. I idolize the past. I always, I don't know, I believe the lie that it was better for whatever reason. They long for a gentler time that was supposedly less evil for whatever reason. We live in our hearts, live in a Photoshop version of the past, often airbrushed 19th century perspective of the West. We imagine a golden age that never really existed. Right? Was the past really better? Was there a nation that didn't have slavery? What about the Trail of Tears in the States? What about war? What about tuberculosis? Tu wow, that was a weird way to say that. <laughs> tuberculosis. What about smallpox? What about infant mortality that skyrocketed, not just killing the infant, but also the mothers? Sin has been in the world since the Garden of Eden. Evil has triumphed in David's day and in Christ's day. The world was wicked in the 1950s, and the world is wicked today. 
And in his sovereignty, God appointed us to be born in this time period, this place and time, for a purpose. And that's to serve him here and now. We can't live in the past. We've got to learn from the past. We can't erase history. That's the dumbest thing we could ever do. Because then we're just going to repeat it. There are, these are just some of the ways that Christians escape. There's many different ways. Churches do this often by becoming more known for tradition than reaching the lost. We can't do that. We've never done that here. Why would we do that? And it kills churches. These, are, these withdrawals seem to offer an escape to us as Christians, some protection. But they come at the expense of the Great Commission, and they come at the expense of our influence for the gospel. And worse, what they imply to the watching world around us is that God can't protect us. Flight is a form of unbelief if it's a substitute for trusting God. David rejected the counsel of despair. And then from David's temptation, we turn to David's foundation. The ones who gave David this counsel were mistaken. Although they were preaching that the foundations were destroyed, they were wrong. For the foundations of God's people is God himself. He is their eternal foundation, their security forever. Moses puts this well in the first psalm ever penned, Psalm 90, verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Amen? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's our eternal foundation. This is what David focused his eyes on. He puts his eyes on God in the second half of Psalm 11. And we see, him, we, see, we see this by paying attention to language that David is using. Within between verses 4 and 7, David uses the personal name of God, Yahweh, four times. This is David's way of appealing to the covenantal nature of God's name. That he said, I will be for my people. I will be their God. I will be with them. We're going to detail this more next week as we look at Hesed, the steadfast love of God. But he is with his people and he's appealing to the covenantal personal nature of God. And this shows us that David's unflinching courage doesn't come from himself, nor does it come from his counselors, but it comes from knowing God personally and taking refuge in him. And we see him doing this by, by looking at the few truth statements that he makes about God. And the first one is that God rules. God is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. Look at the first half of verse 4. It says, The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. David is not referring to an earthly throne or temple here. He is referring to God's supreme temple and his supreme heavenly throne. God's throne is in heaven, far above our puny courts or government buildings. His throne is a symbol of his authority to rule and to judge the nations. No matter what is happening on earth, David is teaching us that God is in control of it. He is meticulously sovereign over everything. He is not caught by surprise. He's not wondering how this all happened. He's not pacing heaven's floors. He's not biting his fingernails. He is in control. He knows all, sees all, and he learns nothing. When the foundation seems to be shaking, and we've all had that moment in our life where it seems like our foundation is crumbling, 
We need to preach this truth to our weary, doubting souls. That God is a sovereign, ruling God who holds all in his hands. That nothing that happens in my life is by accident, but it's all being worked out by a faithful, loving, sovereign God who is watching my life intently. Nothing happens in heaven above or earth around or even in hell below that God has not seen, ordained, or overrules. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this. He says, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. We're not scared. I can't agree with that quote more. I remember how fearful I was as a Christian until I learned about the sovereignty of God. I was raised in a branch of Christianity that taught that God was not in control. But he left his people here to be in control. That we, as mere humans, have the ability to command the almighty God. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want that ability to command God almighty, all-powerful God? But what this does, it sounds nice, but what this does is this leaves many holes in your theology that leads to fear, that leads to uncertainty, that leads to doubt, and sadly, as I've seen, so much unbelief. Well, I've prayed for it, I commanded it, and it didn't happen. I must not be a good enough Christian. God must not love me. I remember I was told this at the passing of my father. said that my family didn't pray hard enough. They said that we didn't have enough faith and that we had control over this as sons of God, and we failed. How foolish that is. How foolish. But when I came to the understanding that God is in control of even these hard, horrible things in our life, the things that we can't explain, the things that leave us breathless because of pain, when I came to understand that God is in control, that this didn't catch him by surprise, that he allows them and he uses them, it doesn't make it any more emotionally easy, but it does spiritually. It puts you spiritually at peace and you rest knowing that God has the ability to take the darkest night of your soul and to form it for good, to transform it to a glorious good for his name. And this is what David in Psalm 11.4 is pointing our eyes to. So he combats that lie that God is not good, that he's not in control, and then he gives a combats against another lie that we seem to believe in the midst of suffering and crisis, and that's that God doesn't see. He doesn't see me. He's blind to me. How could he let this happen? Doesn't he know I'm his faithful servant? Why would this be allowed to come into my life? And I left out the tail end of verse 4 on purpose. It says his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men. And so what we see in this verse is in fact that God does see. He is not blind. And the word see there can be translated as gaze or scrutinize. And pay, and that meaning God is paying careful attention to your life. And I love this painted picture that David gives us when he says, the eyelids of God test us. I love that. That's a beautiful picture. Because it may seem weird at first read, but as you kind of meditate on it, as you think on that, you see its beauty. How many times in our lives when we are suffering or when we're facing challenges, does it seem like God's eyes are closed? Does it seem like he's ignoring us? 
But David gives us this beautiful picture that even when it seems like God's eyelids are closed, which are testing us, and that he's not doing anything, you can know, you can rest assured that he is carefully watching and evaluating the life of every human being, including you. And you have to preach that to yourself. It's hard to believe that in the moment. It's easy to say it now because life is good. But it's hard to believe it in the moment. He sees you. He's not ignoring you. And we must learn to trust him in that storm. And trust that he is testing us by his seemingly closed eyes. Are you trusting me? This is a trial. And it's growing you and refining you. Trust me. I'm working something beautiful in your life, he's saying. But what this also shows is that he doesn't just see you, but he sees all the people of earth, and he's looking, are they good or are they wicked? Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You know what character is? Character is what you do in the dark. Character is who you are when nobody's watching you. Are you just pretending? Or is who you are here at church who you really are at home? Character is what you do in the dark. Now we see the, wicked, we see the character of the wicked, don't we? What do they do in the dark? They shoot from the dark. They attack from the dark. They are dirty fighters, which should tell us something as Christians, that God sees us what we're doing when we think nobody sees us. God knows what you're doing when you're up late on the computer. God knows how you're treating those people in the drive-thru that you go through. God knows how you've belittled that person on the internet, even though you think you have anonymity. God sees. Jesus himself looked into the heart of man during his earthly life, and John writes this. He said that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And when John saw Christ exalted in his heavenly glory, he reports that his eyes were like flames of fire in Revelation. This means that all hearts are open before Christ, and all desires are known to him. And when we stand before Jesus, we stand before a God who sees. But he's not just a God who sees. He's also a God who judges what he sees. Look at verse 5, which says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. First off, what we see is that the Lord tests the righteous, but this isn't the same type of judgment that the wicked will receive. This testing or judgment is for the good of the righteous person. The verb tests or examines in verse 5 refers to the process of proving the integrity of precious metal, meaning God tests the righteous to demonstrate to the world their genuineness, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. This is the kind of testing that Job endured when God proved that Job loved him. This test is related to the activity of a goldsmith purifying gold or silver, heating up the metal to its melting point so the impurities can rise to the top and he skims them off. And when it hardens, it's more pure, it's more integral, it's more precious. And God, the heating process for the righteous is often trouble and affliction. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us. And he wants to purify us. He wants to make us more like Christ. And he wants to give us more of himself. Suffering produces the sweetest relationship you can have with your Savior. It's a road we don't want to go down. But it's a road that often throws us 
all the more at the feet of Christ. The testing fire of God is refining for his followers, but it's devastating for the wicked. Look at verses 5 to 6. Uh, or sorry, we read five. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is a sobering verse. It shows us the anger of God towards the wicked, to those who practice violence, that he's adamantly and eternally angry with everyone who does evil. In church, I know this is a very unpopular subject, in the church, but we shouldn't be surprised to read about the anger of God. I remember I was preaching down in Indiana at a church, and I was preaching a salvation message, and I talked about hell, and a man uh, stood up, just like Jack just did. I didn't bury you. Yeah. And he said, how dare you talk about God's wrath? That's not true. God, a loving God, would never bring about a place like hell. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I just kept preaching I was scared out of my wits, but there was a big pulpit in front of me. So it's an unpopular subject. But if God's love, that which is good, beautiful, and pure, he must hate everything that's set against it. If you love your wife, you are going to hate an intruder who enters your house and harms her when you're gone. And if you don't, I would question if you love her. And in the same way, God's love for the righteous must be matched by his hatred for the wicked. For this reason, it is God's glory to hate sin. He would be less of God if he was not a God of wrath. His love for his people would be a fraud if he was not equally passionate about his hatred for the wicked. God's judgment is not fantasy or fiction, church. May we never believe just because God poured out his judgment in the past, destroying places like Sodom and Gomorrah, bringing a flood, raining fire and brimstone from the sky, that he will not do it again. The scriptures say that the fiery judgment is coming again. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, By the same word in heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God's judgment is delayed right now. And it's, he's watching and weighing the world of men. But it's coming. It's coming for all those who are outside of Christ. But here's the deal. Our responsibilities as hope bearers, as light bearers, as good news bearers, we are to take this news to the world as unpopular as it might be and tell them you don't have to pay your sin eternally. Somebody already was crushed by the wrath of God, paid your sin, and now you can be clothed in the righteousness of another. That's the message we preach, and that's our hope. And this all leads us, as we end, to the reward of God that David ends with, that God rewards. There's a reward for us, for those who are faithful to God. Uh, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. And he loves righteous deeds. And here's the promise. The upright shall behold his face. In the face of a shaky world, a world full of wicked people who lie in ambush and shoot from the shadows, we should never stoop to their level. We should never match their wicked deeds and, and, and perform their wicked deeds. We should never shoot from the dark ourselves. But we should continue on acting justly, acting like Christ, even when it's hard even when it brings persecution for us. Our first response as Christians, as humans, sorry, is to just get even. Someone hurts me, I hurt them. But David says, don't bother 
Because the millisecond of satisfaction you feel by getting even doesn't even compare to the satisfaction, the eternal satisfaction that you will feel in the reward of God. The other side of this coin is not just acting justly in the face of a wicked world in their actions, but not fleeing under the wicked attack either. If we flee in the face of the wicked, we lose our Christian influence. The world is telling us that we need to change, that we need to uh, get rid of this antiquated book, that it's it's outdated, we no longer can live by it. And many churches have sold out to those agendas, and in my opinion, I wouldn't even call them a church, rather a synagogue of Satan. We must stay true to the word of God and not flee and not give in. We don't fight dirty, but we stay the course, preaching the gospel and loving the world and turning it upside down by Christ. Amen? Amen. We must remain. We must not become like the world, retaliating to the same degree by fleeing or removing the only light post that is potentially there. We must remain and reflect the light. And I know I say this often, but what happens when you shine the light in darkness? The bugs come. You got to be prepared for the bugs to come. It happens. But it's supposed to. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds and he will reward the faithful. And his reward who will faithfully do what is right is that they will see his face. Now that might not be uh, attractive to you if you don't love God. The promise, the reward for those who trust him is to see his face. And if, if your heart's not crying out that your steadfast love is greater than life, this might not be attractive to you. But to see God's face means to stand before him as honored servants. It would be like having direct access or direct reporting to the prime minister or president. This is a promise that in in the finally restored good government of the universe, all who stand with the king will stand before God the Father as honored servants. We will have direct access to the Father face to face. Only because our king took upon him our punishment that we have hope to stand before God on the last day. Because our king stands before the Father, we shall also. It's a promise that we have in Christ. This is not wishful thinking that we just hold on to as the world crumbles around us. Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to myself where I am also and I will be with you in John. And the Apostle John also promised that we know that we, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. This is our confidence and hope. And we can stand firm on this. As the world goes from bad to worse, and it will, we will not give in to the counsel of despair. God is the firm foundation for his people. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen. And thus, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And his fire will either refine you or it will destroy you. And those are the two options. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your truth that is found in Psalm 11. Father, we thank you, God, that you are with us in the midst of crisis, even though it feels like times your eyes are closed. God, we know that you are watching us, and it is appropriate as we lament this that we can speak this truth to you. Lord, it feels like you've forgotten me, but God, I know it's true. It's not true. I know you see me.
Father, may we be better at preaching the truths of your word to ourselves until we believe them, until we taste and see that you are good. Father, I thank you for the ones sitting before me. Father, I ask that you bless them, O God, as we go and reflect upon your word and as we sing songs of praise. May you be with us, may you comfort us, and may you transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.